0: Before we begin our Torah study this morning, let's pray together. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctifies us with his commands and commands us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. This morning, I want to talk about unstoppable tenacity. Many blessings that the Lord gives us are accompanied by difficulties and spiritual battles. How many can verify that? And I can tell you that your heart for God and your willingness to keep seeking His face and your determination to follow Him can actually grow stronger in the face of battle. When you are in a battle and you press into God and you draw on the strength of character that you already have, you become even stronger. Your heart grows strong. It's like exercise. It makes you stronger. And so there may be moments when you say, why? And I'm not giving you an answer for every moment, but there are some moments when the why is simply because. Because you live in a broken world. How many can verify that? This world is broken. And yet our hearts yearn for it to be unbroken. And God who tells the truth and doesn't lie tells us that everything we yearn for will come. But not all of it in this age. Some in the age to come. And he tells us the truth so that we can persevere. But he also tells us he's put eternity in our hearts. Why do you yearn? It's because... The things of eternity and all the good that's possible that you you could want or imagine is in your heart. Humanity has been created in this fashion to be made in the image of God means we carry inside of us something of what God is and what he wants. And we yearn for it. And yet, there are times when we are walking with the Lord and we are doing His will and things are, you can fill in the blank, I'll use a word, cruddy, there are other CR words you could use, there are other ways of saying it, you know what I'm talking about. but you need to know what you're made of. And if you have been bought by Yeshua, if you belong to him, you are made of what he's made of. And we don't give up. And we don't turn back. And we don't love our life so much that we shrink from the power of death in this world. And we overcome by the word of our testimony, yes? So we have something to say. But we're not the only ones who have something to say. Those who have gone before us have something to say. And Abraham had something to say. Abraham lived his life in such a way that he followed God on God's terms. And he heard the Lord and he did what the Lord said to do the Lord's way. And the Lord counted it as righteousness. Not because he was righteous, but because he was faithful. He was a man of faith, and he was also faithful. He left the security and familiarity of the world he had grown up in and had lived in for decades and decades and he went to a land that he didn't know that the Lord wanted to give him. And when he got to that land, can you imagine the joy on one hand? Because it's a beautiful land. How many people have been to the land of Israel? I remember flying in once on an El Al plane, and as the plane landed, the entire uh, passenger Compartment burst into applause and shouting and hooting and hollering. And people got off the plane and walked down and just bent down, literally. And I remember seeing people just get on their knees and just thank the Lord and and kiss the ground. It was so beautiful. And I can still do that. Hey. (laughs) There was a moment where I thought, I don't know. (laughs) Actually, I I know I can. Uh, But Abraham went to this land. It wasn't a land he was familiar with. It was a land the Lord knew. And the Lord had chosen and set aside. And the Lord said, I'll give it to you. And Abraham went there. And so it was beautiful and wonderful because it was the land that the Lord gave. And yet, it wasn't easy, and not everybody who lived there was welcoming or happy for Abraham to be there. So from a social point of view, and from an economic point of view, it was a difficult place. So Genesis 26 builds on that. It says, a famine came over the land, not the same as the first famine which had taken place when Abraham was alive. So what do we know? Abraham is already passed, but he had gone through a famine. And when he went through that famine, just to remind you, he went down to Egypt. The Lord told him, go down to Egypt and then come back. And he came back after a famine. A lot of people won't come back after a famine. They have a moment of difficulty. They say, I'm out of here. Abraham was not like that. He knew what God had promised. God had not promised Egypt. He had promised the promised land. What would become Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel. Abraham's land. So this is a second famine. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Avimelech, the king of the Philistines, Verse 2, Adonai appeared to him. Which is provocative, isn't it? Where do you see the Lord making himself visible in Torah? Well, here's an example. The Lord appeared to Abraham. Now the Lord appears to Isaac. There are so many of us who grew up in Jewish families who somehow missed this part of the Torah, that God can make himself visible. Because the teachings we heard overruled the simple meaning here and said God is formless and invisible, which the Scripture also says, and the New Testament also says, So then, how do you make sense of it? How can God be formless and invisible and be visible and have a form? And how can it be true that no one can see God and survive? And it's because there are different aspects of God. And if we behold his perfect holiness, it is brighter than the sun. The holiness, if you can imagine that, is to be compared to light or maybe radioactivity, radioactive holiness. And if you were to behold it, you would be... I used the self-cleaning cycle in my oven this week. It gets really hot. Smells pretty bad for a little while. But when it's all done and you open it up, there's just a little bit of white ash that's left. That's sort of like what we would be if we beheld the absolute holiness of God. So bright, so holy, We could not be in the presence of the Lord. No one can see that and live. And so what do we see? We see that God, who knows that about us, is able to enter into our world and to embody himself in such a way that we can be with him and not be consumed. And that's what's happening here. That's what happened with Abraham. That's what happened with Adam. It happens again and again and again. So it's good for us to to think through this and to, to recognize how important this is so that we don't commit the sin of editing the scriptures and taking out things that we shouldn't. It's the word of God. The Lord appeared to him. And you know what appear means? It means to become visible. The Lord became visible. He became audible as well. And almost every form of Judaism, except for the most um, secularized forms of religious Judaism, if you can put it that way, um, also believe that he was able to speak, God was able to speak, So, he was able to enter into the time-space world and speak, and his words could be audible and received and recorded. But we know enough about physics to know that if you can speak, because you're in this world, you could be seen as well. You know, energy and all of its different forms is still energy, right? So... If God can be heard and seen, so be it. And that's what what we understand, that the Lord appeared to Isaac and says this, Don't go down into Egypt, but live where I tell you. Stay in this land, and I will be with you and bless you, because I will give all these lands to you and to your descendants. I will fulfill The oath which I swore to Abraham, your father, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. I will give all these lands to your descendants, and by your descendants, all the nations of the earth will bless themselves. I will do it. Stay here. Verse 5, all this is because Abraham heeded what I said and did what I told him to do. He followed my commands, my mitzvot, my regulations, and my teachings. So the Lord is saying to Isaac, and he's saying it personally. He makes an appearance, and he's saying it audibly. He's saying it right then and there. Don't go down to Egypt. Stay here. And I was thinking about Isaac and all of the good memories that must have been resident inside of him because of all the conversations he had with his father Abraham and all the experiences they had going from place to place in this promised land, looking at things, hearing the stories of what Abraham had to say. Because Abraham was clear to teach his son about his experiences. This was the land that Abraham learned to love. It it represented his future. It represented what God had in mind to do. It represented God's faithfulness because the fact that Isaac was born in the land was proof that God can speak and call things that are not as though they were. And his words will come to pass. Isaac was proof that God is faithful. And so this is the land of his family. It's the land of the promise. It's it's also the land of problems. Right? Y'all can nod your head if you agree. It's the land of problems. (laughs) don't go down into Egypt when you've got problems don't go down to Egypt when there's a famine don't just assume that you should escape live where I tell you that's what the Lord said live where I tell you live where I tell you I don't want to live in a famine that can't be good But the Lord says, live where I tell you. So we we can learn something. Sometimes the Lord says to go, sometimes he says to stay. God has different solutions for similar problems and similar situations at different times. Don't just learn one way. Somebody has, not in a spiritual way, but they said, If the only tool in your toolbox is a hammer, every problem starts to look like a nail. If the only solution you have is to go, then every problem looks like an opportunity to go. What's the real principle? What did Abraham learn? Abraham had a pretty good life, and the Lord said, this is a great place you grew up in. Get out of here. You don't belong here anymore. I have a place for you. And Abraham got himself up and went, right? And then he went to the promised land, and that was the land where the famine happened. A lot of people, in response to a famine, would say, I thought I heard the Lord. I must not have. It must have been, well, it wouldn't be pepperoni pizza for (laughs) Abraham. That lamb kebab too late at night. No, it was the Lord. So here's the principle that, that Isaac is actually learning at a whole new level. It's seek the Lord, let him guide you in your situation, and hear what he says and do what he says. And don't take for granted that because he said this one time that he'll say this the same every time. It's not an ethical matter here that is based on a moral principle that is fixed. This is uh, interactive with life. Live where I tell you to live. That's a principle. Live where I tell you to live. Now going to verse twelve, it's very interesting. Okay, what's the uh, what's the agricultural condition of the land? Famine. That usually means drought, right? Verse twelve: Isaac planted crops in that land. He reaped that year a hundred times as much as he had sowed. The Lord blessed him. He kept farming. He kept sowing and reaping. Verse 13, the man became rich and he prospered more and more until he had become very wealthy indeed. He had flocks, cattle, and a large household, and everybody admired him and thought he was terrific. Are you following in your Bible? You see where I veered? away from the text. He had flocks, cattle, and a large household, and the Philistines envied him. Isaac was doing well, and the Philistines were not happy. So you know what that meant? They were not embracing con felicity. You remember that word? The joy of seeing other people do well. They had another motivation, envy. So just because God blesses you doesn't mean that everyone around you will be happy with you. The Philistines envied, and there are different forms of envy. One is, well, I don't want you to have what you have. Or another, I want what you have. Or, A softer version, I wish I had what you had. And that can become covetousness. And then there's the next form. I will take what you have. And it becomes stealing. And that's why the Ten Commandments speak both about coveting and stealing and saying don't do either. They're connected. And Jewish teaching over the ages and through the sages has said, even if the covetous desire is concealed in the heart, the covetous desire in itself is regarded by Torah as damaging to the neighbor. And Philo of Alexandria describes covetous desire as a kind of insurrection that rises up and plots against other people. Maimonides says it simply, desire leads to coveting, and coveting leads to stealing. And Yeshua taught in Luke 12, 15, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. And there's another principle of the sages. These three things go together, coveting, scheming, and then acting. And recognizing that with coveting, there becomes tricks and devices and scheming. Coveting in the heart is, I want what, I, what doesn't belong to me. I want what I should not want. And so I will scheme and work so that it becomes mine. And some Jewish teachers have concluded that The tricks that are prohibited can include things like repeated urging or peer pressure to try to get someone to do something so that what you covet, you can get. And it looks like you got it legitimately when really you used forbidden devices and schemes, all of this. So all of this is interesting when the Scripture says that the Philistines envied it teaches us that they did not just have this concealed attitude in their heart. They may have not wanted to recognize it, but they did not want Isaac to have what God was giving him. They wanted it for themselves. And they took it. And that's what we read about. Now, the Philistines had stopped up and filled with dirt all the wells that Isaac's father's servants had dug during the lifetime of Abraham, his father. So they had already tried to, through their schemes and actions, to make it impossible for Abraham's descendants, Isaac, and his family, to make use of what Abraham had developed. It's interesting. That's the form of envy and covetousness that says, I don't want you to have what you have. Now, it's kind of stupid because then they're making that well inaccessible to everyone. Do you see that? But some people, what did? what's that German word? Schadenfreude. I'm not saying it quite right, but it means to find pleasure in someone else's misery. Schadenfreude. Danke. Yeah, so instead of confelicity, like, great, I'm so happy for you, you're doing well. It's like, I don't want you to have what you have. Verse 16, Avimelech said to Isaac, you must go away from us because you become much more powerful than we are. And so Isaac left, he set up camp in the wadi, Garar and lived there. And Isaac reopened the wells which had been dug during the lifetime of Abraham, his father, the ones the Philistines had stopped up after Abraham died, and he called them by the names his father had used for them. Think about that. He knew the names. He knew the locations. Because he was involved, he took note, he heard the stories, he participated, he valued Abraham's experiences. And he learned, because you can't use a name that you never learned. Isaac's servants dug in the wadi. They uncovered a spring of running water. And it's during a drought and famine, and there's a spring of running water that's hidden. But the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, claiming, that water's ours. And so he called the well Essek, which means quarrel, because they quarreled with him. So then they dug another well and quarreled over that one too. And so he called it Sitna, which means enmity or antagonism. So you see what's going on here. A lot of conflict. The wells had been stopped up, but Isaac has unstoppable tenacity. He digs up and opens up what had been stopped up yet again. He went away from there and dug another well, and over that one, they did not quarrel. So he called it Rechovot, which means wide open space, and said, because now Adonai has made room for us, and we will be productive in the land. And from there, Isaac went up to Beersheba, And Adonai appeared to him that same night. Another occasion. And said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Don't be afraid because I'm with you. I will bless you and increase your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. And there Isaac built an altar and called on the name of Adonai. And he pitched his tent there and there. Yitzchak's servants dug a well. So the Lord blessed him. But with blessing comes challenge, conflict, battle, resistance. But Isaac was committed to the legacy that Abraham had passed on to him. Isaac valued what Abraham had done and what Abraham had given him as an inheritance. And I I want to now take another step with this outside of what we just read and apply some of this to Jacob and Esau the sons of Isaac. So Isaac values the legacy. Remember that. Because he paid attention. He he honored his father's work and said, this is important. He noticed how important the wells were. He knew the names of the wells. Isaac was a man who honored the legacy of his father. Esau did not honor the legacy, and Jacob did. So the two sons of Isaac have conflict, and it's really connected in part to the difference in their character traits. Esau doesn't value the legacy. He didn't value the birthright. And Jacob did value the legacy, and Jacob valued the birthright, and ultimately Esau lost his birthright as firstborn, he lost his inheritance, what would be his inheritance, and Jacob gained it. So in this respect, Jacob had a character similar to Isaac. So back to Isaac and his commitment to the legacy that Abraham had passed on to him. Isaac valued the legacy, he honored the inheritance, and he remembered What were the wells? What were their names? And he exerted effort to unstop the wells. And he had determination and resolve. Think about the details of all of this. Isaac had to remember, and you can't remember if you don't listen and if you don't consider something important. Isaac paid attention to the location, the names of the wells. And this is a great lesson for young people. Because sometimes it will serve you well to listen carefully and to learn, because one day you're going to need it. And if you didn't learn it when you could have, you won't have it when you need it. Anybody struggle in their schooling when you thought something wasn't gonna be on the test? And all you wanted to know was, is that gonna be on the test? And if the answer was no, or you thought it was no, you didn't pay attention. And then you turned out, no, it wasn't on the test, but it was gonna be on the next test, or the next, or whatever. Isaac's commitment required effort. He had to unstop the wells. He had to know how to get that done. Hard work often is required. So you know what that means? When we're young, we need to learn to work hard. It's easier to learn to work hard when you're young than to not learn it and then to have to learn to work hard later in life. How many can verify that? That's why the scripture says, no one likes being disciplined. But later, the fruit of the discipline is good. And if you have good habits in life because your parents force them into you, there's a certain moment when you thank God for your parents. How many found that out later in life? Thank you, Lord, for my parents. I remember my mother insisted that uh, I and my siblings learn to type on electric typewriters. And we had to go to secretarial school in the summer and go to secretarial classes in order to learn to type by professionals training secretaries. My mother was a fast typist, but she was a fast two-finger typist. And she was really fast. She did not believe in punctuation. And so she didn't even bother uh, when she was typing. But she wanted us to do better than that, and we learned to type. And we learned to type in a pretty good way. And you know what, it paid off in college when typing my papers was easy. And I remember being glad, I know how to type. know, <laughs> I'm not sitting here struggling, because some people who don't know how to type, back in the day, they were like struggling. It's one thing to write your paper, it's another thing to type it, and then the typing for some people took even longer than the research and the writing, because they were so in there but I was thankful. I went to secretarial school. So what what skills did you gain? Well, I learned how to type. And I learned how to answer the phones for my parents' business. So I learned how to be a receptionist. So just in case everything else collapsed in my life, there was always a career possibility. Learn to work hard. So don't resist your parents, young people, as they're trying to uh, build discipline into you, because it will pay off. Instead, make it joy. Make Make it something worthwhile. Isaac's commitment required determination, resolve, tenacity. And that's why I was entitling this message, Unstoppable, tenacity, because so many times people tried to stop Isaac, and he did not allow them to stop him. He was tenacious. And there's a simple word that brings all of those qualities together. Grit. G-R-I-T. And it's a Character trait its one of the most important because it works together with a lot of other character traits and it multiplies these other character traits. Backbone, having, having backbone, having moral strength and moral fiber, grit. Isaac had grit. He was strong. He um. He adapted. He loved the land that his father had loved. He valued it, and he wanted to be faithful to God in that land, even in the face of adversity. He had a second commitment, which was to do new work when it was required. He faced opposition, and in the first examples, he just moved on. He didn't abandon the assignment. He didn't say, you know what? this opposition must mean I should go down to Egypt. He worked within the parameters that God had given him. He stayed in the land where he had been living. He stuck with it. He didn't give up. He didn't give in. And after the first time when they opposed him and after the second time when they opposed him and after the third time, he was unstoppable. So, Ask yourself, where does God want you? Because that becomes a boundary for you. When Sandy and I were living in Budapest and we were looking for a place to live, an apartment to rent, we had like this sense of boundaries where we were supposed to live and where we weren't supposed to live. And sometimes we would look at a piece of property, an apartment that was outside of this like intuitive zone, and our hearts would say, nope. We'd see beautiful places, uh, well-priced places, places that were perfect except they weren't in the right location. And we just have to say no. And I remember one of the agents, because you know there weren't a lot of Americans looking at that time for a place to live. And so our agent said, I've shown you everything. There's nothing left to see. And we thought, yeah, but there's nothing right. And then when it was a few moments before too late, we got a call that there was one more property to see, and we went to see it. And the agent representing the owners wanted to know a little bit about us and ask some questions. And I told her some answers about why we were there in Budapest. And she remembered the controversy that a Messianic Jewish outreach created in the Jewish community. She remembered that as a Jew. And she said, oh yes, there was quite a scandal And she said it in a Hungarian English way, a scandal. It's like, yeah, there was. And then she just changed topics and said it's really important for you to live in a place that is owned by good people. And we thought, yeah, I guess so. I mean, who would disagree with that? And in exploring what she meant, she said, well, the almashis who own this place that you're looking at, they are good. They're good people. And so I, having come from a journalistic background, just followed up and said, why do you say that? And she said, they rescued Jews. And I thought, okay, that's good. And so I followed up. So what do you mean they rescued Jews? And she said, they rescued my mother. And because of that, I'm I'm here, I'm alive. And so we were rejoicing in this simple story. And that was the place we ended up moving to. It was exactly in the zone where our intuitive radar said yes. And it was unavailable until that last moment. And that was the only place we lived in when we were in Budapest. Yeah. So there are boundaries. Sometimes you know what they are, sometimes you don't. Sometimes you have to find out what they are. Sometimes it's intuitive, spiritual. Sometimes it's concrete and clear. But what about when you have difficulties? Well. Do something new. Do it in a new way if you must. Use your intelligence and determination to make decisions that fit within what God has told you. Don't give up on what God tells you. Use your strength to fit in. That's what Proverbs twenty-four sixteen is all about. The godly may trip and fall down seven times, but they will get up again. Now think about that. You know what that means? Six times they fell and got up. Six times. The seventh time they fell again, what did they do? They got up again. Why? (coughs) Because that's what the godly do. They get up again. Right? Where do we get that from? Unstoppable tenacity. It comes from our people. It comes from Abraham. It comes from Isaac. It comes from Jacob. It comes from our heroes. We admire it. We embrace it. It's getting up again as part of grit. So I can tell you this, Yeshua wants to lead us. The Holy Spirit wants to guide us. God wants to bless you and he will help you. He will help you live in the place he wants for you. He'll help you navigate through all the challenges. But let's remember this, many blessings are accompanied by spiritual battles, by challenges, but your heart for God your willingness to keep seeking his face, your determination to follow him, all of these grow strong through the battles. The battles build heart. The battles build willingness. The battles build determination. And all of this helps us better understand the story of Isaac's sons, Esau and Jacob. Isaac valued the legacy. Jacob valued the legacy. Esau did not. Sometimes you'll never fully understand people and their behavior if you don't understand what they value and what they consider worthless. My heart, my prayer is, I want to value the legacy that God has given me through my family, through my people, and through the family of faith. And so you know what I would say? Let's keep digging wells. Let's keep digging wells, even new wells, when we need them. Why would we do that? That's what we're made of, folks. That's what we do. If we have to, we just dig new wells. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for giving us a beautiful history of faith and faithfulness of seeking you and heeding what you say. Thank you, Lord, for giving us tenacity, unstoppable tenacity, and building that up in us and teaching us to value that. Thank you, Lord, that we are people with grit. And help us not be stubborn, but to persevere and to be faithful in the directions you give us. We pray this in Yeshua's name. Amen. Well, we're going to close with Aaron's blessing, and then we'll have our Oneg next door. (coughs) And so if you would please rise, and first, for everyone online, if you would consider standing with us with a generous donation, you can find out all the details on our webpage, bethisraelnow.com slash giving. And now Aaron's blessing. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you even in the face of opposition. May the Lord cause the light of his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his face to you and give you his peace. In the name of Yeshua, the Prince of Peace. Amen.